morning, church. My name is Brett. I am pastor of this people. It's good to see all of you, but especially those who are with us for the first time. Bless you. Glad you were here, and thank you for making us your home church for an hour today. We're going to continue our series on our objectives as a congregation. Three things that we want everybody to go through when they come here. One, to encounter Christ in a significant way. Two, to experience community, we as a family. And three, to extend the kingdom, take it out beyond you and this house. And today we're going to talk about the second objective, which is to experience community. Turn with me over to the book of Acts, chapter 9. Acts, chapter 9. The title of the message is Experience Community, Church Health. Church Health. Acts, chapter 9, verse 31. It says, So the church throughout all of Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up, and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. Lord, help as we study your word today. Five things about this passage that I'd like to speak. Speak on one, places, two, peace, three, power, four, progress, and five, production, productivity. Here we've got the church in Jerusalem that is progressing wonderfully. By the time we get to Acts chapter 9, which is the history of the early church, the first church growing, we are probably about nine, eight to ten years, someplace in there, eight to ten years in the church's progress. Christ died somewhere around 30 AD, and the church at this point can be marked out at somewhere around 38 or 39. And we know that because we can mark out some very important points that happened in history during this period, namely Saul's conversion, the Saul who would then become Paul, and where he was at different points after his conversion. And he was a central figure in the book of Acts, yet not so much positively until Acts chapter 9. Before that, he had been one of the primary vessels through whom the enemy used to persecute the church. By his own admission, he would go into homes and, and pull people out and take them to jail if they were Christians. He was there at the stoning of Stephen. Stephen was a deacon in the church, the first martyr of the church in Acts chapter 7. And they stoned him, the people did of the day in Jerusalem. And you could not just go ahead and carry out a lynch mob, if you will. You had to have the, 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 the approval of an official, a governing official. And Saul was that governing official. Yet on the road to Damascus, as he was going to find some more Christians to persecute, God showed up. Jesus blinded him with a bright light, said, why are you persecuting me? And, and Saul gave his heart to Christ at that time. Was discipled in Damascus by a man named Ananias. This comes about right about 34 AD. Uh, he, he then goes to uh, Arabia for a little bit, comes back to Damascus and preaches the gospel. He is so on fire for Jesus and un, un, unafraid of his, for, for his own well-being. He realizes his life is not his own anymore. And he preaches with such boldness that now the people in Damascus want to kill him. 
And so they drop them out, meaning the good people, his friends, take them, put them in a basket and let them out over the side of the wall of the city, and he escapes. Uh, he then goes to Tarsus for a little bit, which is his hometown, and then winds up about three years later, about 38, 39, in Jerusalem. And the people in Jerusalem are afraid because the last time they saw Saul, he was killing folk. And they're not quite sure, though he, he claims to be a Christian, they think he might be a plant and that he might be a spy just sent in there to try to find out who is most right with God, therefore who can I persecute the most. And he winds up being right. So right that now the people in Jerusalem who hated the disciples and those who hated Jesus now hate Saul. And they're trying to kill him. Wherever Saul went, there was trouble. Whether he caused it before he was a believer by trying to persecute the church, or now whether he caused it as a believer and that people wanted to persecute him, there was always trouble wherever this brother went. In Acts chapter 20, there's a guy named Agabus who happens to be a prophet. And and Paul is now on his second missionary journey. And as a result of preaching the gospel every place, he's got some history. I mean, he's been doing this thing now for a good 15, 20 years. And and he's about ready to go back to Jerusalem. And the last time he was there, it wasn't a good thing. And so the the prophets hear from God. And they come to him and say, we see the man going to Jerusalem like this. And he took a a belt and wrapped it around his hands. He's He's going to be bound and he's going to be beaten and treated horribly. And Agabus was saying this from God about Saul. And the church said, yes, finally, the word of the Lord has come. And a man now knows from God what's going to happen. And he doesn't have to go because God has warned him. Thank you, Lord. To which Saul says, so? He said, what's new? The Holy Spirit tells me that when I get ready to go to any city, all you've done is taken the radio dial. Do you remember what a radio dial used to be? You've taken the radio dial and just tuned it into what I hear all the time. Nothing new. Why should it stop me from going to Jerusalem? He was always in trouble. If you were on Paul's, Saul, he was Paul then. If you were on Paul's staff, you had to have faith. Because you you might, do you know this brother? He ministered about 28 years, we think. Three of it was spent in prison. Three, one-tenth of his ministry was behind bars. You had, if you were his staff, wh- wh- why, how, how, okay, let me tell mama I won't see her for three or four years now, and, and I'm going to be a criminal. <laughs> that, that works real good. If you had to have faith, because it was going to cost you everything. Well, to the same extent, here we, in Acts chapter 9, he's gotten right with God at the beginning of Acts 9. And he's been through everything I just told you. And this is his first trip now to Jerusalem as we begin to get to the end of chapter 9. And in Jerusalem, caused trouble. They had to have him leave. And then we get to verse 31. It says, and now the church enjoyed peace. There's something about Paul's ministry, as I said, that caused trouble wherever he went. And the church was now in a period of real of real calm. And as a result, there were some other accentuating 
characteristics that allowed us to understand what a church should look like. And I don't, I don't know that uh, there is a better description of a church than this one right here. Now, there are things that, that people do in the church and leadership decisions that are made that help get the church to this spot, but I want to highlight what, what a good church looks like. Paul talks about what a church ought to be and what a church ought to do through all of his epistles. But we don't see a view of what the church ought to be except here. And it says, number one, the church was in Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. Three places. So the church was multi-local. Meaning the church ought to grow to expand beyond its local, beyond its, its center point. And that takes some intentionality. Now, the early church really didn't have a, a whole lot of intentionality because they, even though they heard the word that Jesus said, go into all the world and preach this gospel, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I told you, and lo, I will be with you always, even to the very end of the age. They heard that, but what they heard was this, go into all of the world and preach to the Jewish parts of the world. So whenever you find a Jew, preach to them about who this Messiah is. And Jesus would be with you. They didn't think that we had any portion in the inheritance, in the covenant of God. None. Now I realize that we who are Gentiles, Gentiles are people who are not Jewish, means the rest of the world. We now, for the most part, define what church life is like. And that there are very few Jewish people that have incorporated their, their old covenant into the new. There are a lot, but a lot is relative. 98% of the church in the world is Gentile. And so it's hard for us to think that it started all Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. John the Baptist was Jewish. Mary was Jewish. Joseph was Jewish. Peter was Jewish. John was Jewish. James was Jewish. All of them, everybody was Jewish. And they thought Jesus said, go into all the world and preach to the Jewish parts of the world. And so they weren't very proactive about this increase beyond their locale. But all of a sudden, stuff started happening in Acts chapter 8, whereby persecution arose in the church in Jerusalem, and, and people were being threatened with their lives. And it's amazing how you can hear from God about go. When your circumstances have changed, no longer is there calm. Your life is in danger. Oh yeah, Jesus said go, about time, about time now, about time. And so people started to flee out of Jerusalem. And one place, and, and, and even though that's funny, it's true. The only way the church got out of Jerusalem was persecution. There, there's, there's apostulo, which means being sent. That's Greek, apostulo, which means somebody's actually laying their hands on you and telling you. And then there's ekbalo in the Greek. Both of them mean you're not here anymore. <laughs> but one of them means you just left. You got kicked out by circumstance. And folks were kicked out. That's what it means when it talks about the persecution that happened in the church as a result of Stephen's death in Acts chapter 7 and what happened in Acts chapter 8. And a guy named Philip, who was a, a deacon, went to Samaria. Now, geographically, Judea's here, Samaria's here, Galilee's here. Between Judea and, and, and Galilee, about 90 miles. You could not get to Galilee without going through Samaria. And Samaria had the people that were the Samaritans, folks that Jews really didn't think were worthy of receiving the message of the truth. 
A strange group of folk, kind of a, a composite of a little bit of Jewish religion and ethnic heritage and a little bit of Assyrian religion and ethnic heritage. The Samaritans were not seen as people you need to fraternize with at any level among the Jews. And so, but, but it's amazing how, how you can be inspired to make new friends when you have to be ekbaloed. And so they left and Philip winds up in Samaria. And while he's in Samaria, he begins to preach the gospel. And all of a sudden, folk, Samaritans get saved. And he's sitting there, oh, God likes, God likes Samaritans. He wires back to all the people in Jerusalem. Peter, you need, believe it or not, Samaritans got saved up here. No. Peter and John come up to investigate. And all of a sudden, they see these Samaritans worshiping. They say, wow, that's amazing. They get baptized. It's a Holy Ghost moment. Now, a church is started in Samaria, Acts chapter 8. And then one started in Galilee. Oh, we, we try to pattern ourselves after this. Church planting ought to be a part of church organization. We've got a congregation in Sterling, pastored by David Hermes, doing a fabulous job. We've got a congregation in D.C. pastored by Pastor Donald Jones. Fabulous job. We've got, we, have, we have a Latino congregation that meets in this house. All Spanish, 1245, 180 people right in our classroom. Love it. They are us. We planted a church in Phoenix, Arizona with the church downtown, our, our D.C. church. We planted a church in L.A. church in L.A. two years ago now has 300 people. The church in Phoenix has 150. Planted a church in Orlando, Florida. Has 500 folks. God seems to be doing some things through our church planting. But remember, these are plants. They aren't splits. All these folk still love you. They love me. They call me pastor. Some of them call me daddy. I try not to let them. (laughs) They call me pastor. They love it here. Why? Because we don't allow there to be a leadership ceiling on anybody. I'm working myself out of a job, y'all. I know some of you really like me. You would love for me to be here as senior pastor forever. Not happening. Oh, thank you so much. That makes me feel good. It makes me feel real good. I've been doing this for 35 years. At some point, you just need to hand it over rather than trying to figure out when you can't do it anymore, who needs to take it. By the time I hand it over and give it as an inheritance, I will still have a fastball. I can still play. I can still play. I do everything I can to keep my physical body in in good condition. I eat what I don't want to eat, nasty, healthy, organic junk. I do what I can to make sure I'm healthy so that I can be what I need to be to you. And I stay with my God and I read my Bible and I study and I pray. I do all the things necessary to help for personal growth, not just professional acumen. I do what I can to be what I can. But when it comes to me holding on to this position, I do it like this. I let it go. And I love it when Jared acts stupid up here. I love it. I've never fired somebody from here. But he tempts me. He tempts me. But that's my boy. It's my boy. He's, he's going to help you. David Hermes is going to help you. Stephen Law is going to help you. 
We are raising them up to take my place. And that within the next five to ten years, it's a done deal. Along with Michelle McGraw and Jessica Carson and all these young people, these millennials that I don't get, you will. We love them. They don't think like us at all. They're stupid sometimes, but we love them. I sat with some the other day. Sit there talking about it one day and one of their friends had just decided that smoking and, uh, 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 drugs and, and doing drugs was better than going to school. So he got kicked out. And, and, and I listened to him and they said, well, you know, you can't judge. Just, it, you know, you can't, can't judge whatever's good for him. I, I said, look, look, look at me right here. I said, that's stupid. That's stupid. That's wrong. That's stupid. Well, he can make his own decisions. Yes, he made a stupid decision. <laughs> we love giving our inheritance away. What happens when you don't do that is that this leadership ceiling keeps hitting people in the head. And then you don't send anybody anymore. They leave. And when they leave, they take folk with them. And what do we call that? Split. We don't have those. We haven't by the grace of God. And it's not because Brett is such a good leader. It's just that we've developed architecture that militates against it. We want young people to come up and we want to plant all over. By the way, we're planting right now at the University of Maryland. That is happening. Now, Pastor Jared got up here and talked about university campuses. That's what we do. I realize most of y'all, that's in your rearview mirror a long time ago. You can't even see it. It's a little dot. But we, we, we believe in the university campuses. Uh, we, we reach out to Howard University downtown. We reach out to Georgetown. We reach out to American University. We have a campus ministry here with 100 kids, 120 kids that meet over George Mason. We hit, George, we hit uh, Virginia Commonwealth. We're going to reach out and plant a church in the next two years at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. We care about college campuses. We want college kids to come to the knowledge of the truth because they are the leaders of tomorrow. And generally, they're the population that is not sought after in church. They are adults, but they don't have any money. And they are transient. And so nobody really wants to reach out to them because you can't build a church with them. We know how. We believe it's important to not neglect them. And in doing so, we don't neglect you either. We have the combination. We know how to weave it together whereby you can incorporate and give your wisdom and participate in the process and don't feel like an afterthought because we care about our community as well. But when it comes to planting, that's how we do what we do. We want multi-locations from people that have been built from us, sent from us, and some of them will stay right here and pastor this work. There is no ceiling on the level of leadership to which God has given to any individual in this house. You can attain to whatever he desires. Secondly, not only is it multi-local, but there's peace. It said the church in, in Judea, in Samaria, and Galilee enjoyed peace. Peace ought to be the order of the day for the church. Every once in a while something comes up that requires us to do some things in order to preserve peace. But peace ought to be that which is normal for the church. The psalmist said of God, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. 
Quiet waters are the only waters from which sheep will drink regularly. The reason being, if there are turbulent waters, waters that run fast, a stream or a river that's going really quick, the sheep are concerned that they will drown. The water will get up their nose and they'll die. So they won't drink. No matter how thirsty they are, they won't drink. They drink from still waters. And we're not much different. It's hard for us to drink from the waters of turbulence. If you hear something coming out of a preacher's mouth that sounds theologically correct, but the spirit behind it just doesn't jive, you sit there and say, what's wrong with this? I can't drink as deeply as I'd like because what I'm, what I'm hearing factually is true, but what I'm feeling spiritually is not. If the worship team is on point with their mu- musicality, I mean, they are on it, but then you just sense a little flesh in the way they sing it. Anybody know what I'm talking about? That run was amazing, but was it God? Boy, you can blow, but I'm not quite sure whether it's the soul or the spirit. Mixed waters, turbulent waters. If there are things that happen in your relational context whereby somebody does something, it messes up the waters and it becomes difficult for you to drink from that relational context as you should. Turbulence is not something that should be the norm of the church. It should be peace. Now, you cannot stop things happening because people got issues. Everybody in here is bringing in some baggage. Something we're hoping is just to carry on, but most of the time it's not. I mean, when you come up in church, it's more like beep, 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 beep. You back it up an entire truckload of stuff. And so you're bringing your problems with you, which means you aren't bringing much peace. You are here to find the peace that can fix your, your, your storm. That's why you're here. And we get that. So you, you never experience as much as you'd like as if you were in heaven because we live in a sin-sick world, a fallen reality that we are constantly trying to fix. But as far as it is possible with us, we are preserving the peace that God gives, the unity he gives We work hard at reconciliation. We work hard at resolving conflict. There's so much stuff that goes on behind the scenes that I have to fix. Y'all don't know it, though. You have no idea. And do you know your body right now? Right now, you got poisons in your body. You got toxins in your body. But God has designed the body so that the body knows how to get rid of it without killing you. If your appendix bursts, you're in trouble. But it's got stuff on the inside that it knows, the body knows how to eliminate as long as it stays inside. And so we work hard at keeping all the mess on the inside and eliminating it as it should be eliminated so it doesn't cause you cause for pause where you now say, oh, I don't know if I can drink from what Pastor Brett's saying today because this thing happened. And now you don't hear me the same way as you used to. We cannot produce a perfect reality, but we do our best to make sure that whenever you walk in this house on a Wednesday, on a, on a Sunday, you drink from still waters. We work hard at that so you can enjoy peace every day. As you experience community, that's what you ought to experience with us on the regular. Thirdly, it says that we're being built up. Built up. Strengthened. It's not just the environment that needs to be 
mitigated. It's also your personal life and we as a people that there needs to be an architectural plan, an artist rendering of what your life should look like and what we ought to look like as a people that is a model that gives you an idea about where you ought to go. Coming on Sunday morning is really special. I am so glad you are here. But you're, you are not fulfilling your duty to God by coming for an hour out of your 168. You are fulfilling your duty to God when you do something with the hour in the rest of your 167. I'm talking about hours in a week, that's how many there are. You are called to build something every day. That's why you need to read your Bible every day. So you can get the building blocks that help you build something in your life. It is not enough just to say, Whoa, Pastor Brett was on today. Worship was amazing. I really feel better. What about Monday? If you don't do anything with what you heard, then you are a person that isn't building well. What did Jesus say? Two fellas came to church. Matthew chapter 7. One heard it, went out, began to build, but he didn't do it on the basis of obedience. He was just going on what he heard, not trying to put anything into practice, and did not dig, 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 did not dig deep. Oh, God, Lord, have mercy on me. Did not dig deep enough in order to find a rock, but he built his house on the sand. One thing we are not impervious to is the storm. It's coming. It's on the way. You are right around the corner from your next big one. So you better build while the storm is far enough away whereby you can build. Because when the storm comes, you can't build. You have to build in peace. This guy didn't build well because he didn't build on obedience. And the other guy who was in church, he heard it. And he said, let me put into practice on Monday what I heard on Sunday. And he began to dig down, push away all the dirt, the sand, until he found the rock. And when he found the rock, he said, I'm going to build upon this thing. Because when the storm comes, my house will last. It will stand. And sure enough, the storm came to both. Beat, floods rose, wind came, water came, and all of a sudden the house that was built upon the sand was swept away. But the house that was built upon the rock, all the shutters were gone, a few shingles fell off, needed a new paint job, but somebody was dry. Still had a house. Important. So important for you to build something that lasts. And it takes the power of Almighty God to do it. It's not just the structure. You have to have, you have to, you have to add the, the, the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life to build architecturally in your own home so that your home begins to look a little bit like an outpost of heaven. That your life begins to look a whole lot like Jesus where people are able to say, you're the finest Christian I've ever met. That stuff comes out of your mouth has been architecturally rendered so that What comes out sounds like what Jesus would say. Build up. Build. Don't just come. Build. And let the power of the Holy Spirit empower you to do so. Because everything that comes against you will come against your structure. Your willingness to continue to put one brick upon another. And you've got to have the power of Almighty God to continue. Next is progress. It said they went on in the progress of the Lord. They were progressing. In the fear of God, they were progressing in the fear of God and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. In the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. You talk about the opposite ends of the spectrum. Comfort, fear. Now when we talk about fear, we're not talking about being afraid of a God who sits on a throne with a lightning bolt in his hand ready 
he, he's, got, he's got a big target on your head. And as soon as you do something wrong, it's coming with fury. That's not what we're talking about. The fear of the Lord is a deep reverence that you don't want to do anything that would offend him. All you want to do is make him happy every day. You're not trying to live a minimalistic Christian life whereby you're just getting by. Pastor, what, what, do I, what, do I, what do I need? What is the basic thing I need? Give me the minimum stuff I need to do to get into heaven. I can do that, but why do you ask? Well, I don't want to miss out in heaven. I want to go to heaven. I said, what about bringing a little bit of heaven here? That seemed to be the focus of, of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So God wants you to bring heaven here. So although I want you to get there, I'd rather you be a reflection of his goodness here. So it's not so much about the minimum stuff you need to, to do to get to glory. Let's figure out how you can do the maximum to bring the kingdom to your, to your life in all of its power and glory with the pleasure of God in tow. How can we make that happen? The fear of the Lord. Job is one of the finest men I've, I've ever not met. I don't know, guys. If you read the book of Job within the context that I'm telling you now, you will just, your jaw drops. He didn't have a Bible. He lived between the time of Noah and Abraham. He didn't have a church. His best friends called him a liar. These were his buddies. Fess up. Nobody has this happen to him that doesn't do really bad stuff. And you must have done something really bad that you're not telling us about. You're a liar. Tell us what you did, Job. These were his buddies. And he keeps his integrity throughout the entire... Where did he... How did he know what he needed to keep? Who told him? Where was his pastor? What an amazing guy. And in chapter 28, he says this. Wisdom is fleeting. It's hard. you, you, You can't buy it with gold or silver. You can't dig under the earth and mine it out. If you go to the depths of the sea, it doesn't exist. It's like the wind. You grab it with your hands and you have as much as you had before you grabbed nothing how do you find it and he ends it with this God speaks to him he says the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord and those who turn away from evil have understanding this is where because Solomon had this stuff David had this stuff they had the book this is where we get it passed down from one generation to another about what wisdom looks like and how to live in the fear of Almighty God every day. That you don't make a decision that is contrary to His will. That you are always trying to figure out, God, what makes you happy? Not just what you're tolerant of. What makes you happy? What can I do to bring a smile to your face today? That is the fear of God. And then the comfort of the Holy Spirit. That comfort doesn't just mean that, that the Holy Spirit comes alongside to console you when it's tough. He does. But it's much more than that. It's the word paraklesis. And in the Greek it means to strengthen and to encourage. As if you have taken your last step and in your soul you say, I cannot go on any further. 
And then you feel this wind, this power that picks you up and says, take one more step. That's the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, bringing you comfort like that, that though you have not been able to continue on your own, you can through me. And he comes to bring you to a spot you couldn't be at on your own. That is what it means to be comforted by the Holy Spirit. It's our hope that as you experience this house, that you would experience every day the fear of Almighty God, a holy reverence for who he is and realizing he's different than you. You can't go te-a-te with him. You can't have a face-to-face. I know many of you are saying, when I get to heaven, I want to talk to God about a few things. Be, be very careful, please. <laughs> be, 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 be very, 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 very careful. You, he's in heaven. You are on earth. He knows all. You know little. Even your strength is weakness compared to his. You are not him. And by the way, he is merciful to you every day to allow you to continue to breathe his air, drink his water, eat his food, live on his planet. It's his. And because we feel entitled, we don't even give him the, the, the credit he's due. We ought to wake up every day just saying, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being a good God to me when I have disobeyed you so often. I deserve judgment, yet you greet me with your mercy every morning. We need to be a people that convey that on a regular. The fear of Almighty God. This is how we live and the accompanying comfort of the Holy Spirit. And lastly, it says the church grew, increased. That the church continued to increase. There ought to be a growing in us. There ought to be an increase in your life. If you are the same person you were last year, something's wrong. Something's wrong. I'm... I'm I'm still changing. I have a long way to go. I'm not what Jesus wants me to be yet. I'm grateful that I'm not what I used to be. I'm not only not what I used to be 35, 36 years ago, but I'm not what I used to be six months ago. And I'm finding the presence of God to be more accessible to me, not because he's closer, but because I'm just more like him. I I still have a ways to go, but I'm coming into something faster when I get into his presence than I ever have before. I hear his voice more clearly. I understand the power of his presence more readily. And I am, I'm being challenged on the regular to try to figure out how to bring that power to, be, to, to bear in people's lives that, that desperately need it. I, I, I've, seen, I've seen people healed when I pray for them. I've seen demonic spirits cast out of people when I've commanded them to go. I've seen miracles. It's, it's been really neat. God has chosen to use my life in ways like I never thought possible. But it's not as regular as I'd like. And these things are to be signs that accompany the message that I preach on a regular basis. That's what Jesus said in, Matt, in Mark chapter 16. These signs will accompany those who believe when you go out and begin to preach my message. And so I've begun in a fresh way to grow in my understanding of how I need to seek eagerly spiritual gifts, as it says in 1 Corinthians 14. I'm trying to grow in that aspect more than I ever have before. What is it in your life that you need to grow in? Holiness? Making sure you're careful about what you see on the Internet, what you think, the words of your mouth, envy, jealousy, things that are horrible, 
antis to everything that is good about the fruit of the Spirit, preferring others and loving others and being kind to others. How do you need to grow? And we need to grow as a congregation. On average, we're, we're growing in the last decade about 12% a year. And that's, that's good. But it is nothing compared to how the early church grew. Nothing. And I'm, I'm begging you, help us grow. Numbers mean very little to me. They mean something, but very little. Numbers mean people, and so I care about people. But I do not need my ego scratched. That itch is done. I'm not trying to figure out how to get some more numbers behind this church's name so I can feel more significant. I'm, I'm shocked you even want to come. That you show up on a regular, I'm just amazed because I know who I am. But when you come, I know that most of your mentality is, boy, I need to bring my friend. And if I bring my friend, I hope Pastor Brett is really on today. <laughs> because it's the only time, it's the only shot this guy's going to get. He's not going to come again. <laughs> if he's bad, if Pastor Brett is not on today, he ain't coming back. I get it. I get it. But I'm begging you, don't use me as your growth tool. Listen, there is not a Sunday or any other time where I minister the gospel where I have not been prepared. I work hard. I work hard to make sure that how I storytell on a Sunday morning is methodical. And you barely know I'm on point four because I'm telling stories. And I weave it in my life on a regular basis. I study on Wednesday make my preparations and meditation all throughout Thursday and Friday, Saturday and Sunday morning. I work hard at preparation and there's never been a time when I've been unprepared when I've presented before you or any other people for that matter. Having said that, have I always done well? <laughs> Ladies, you, you, you got your recipe for your certain dishes, don't you? I mean, they can't be found in a cookbook. You just know what to do. But have you ever done the right thing? You put it in the oven, it comes out, and you say, what went wrong? <laughs> I, I, I know I did this, that, it was, but it doesn't taste the same. And I can do all the recipe. And then come here and think, Lord, that wasn't as good as I, I had. I saw that coming out differently. Sometimes it's a six. Now, I know you don't grade, but you grade. You grade. You grade me every week. You walk out of here saying, eh. <laughs> yeah. I love him, but today. And then sometimes you walk out thinking, boy, he was on today. That was amazing right there. That Pastor Brad, woo! <laughs> if, you're, if your whole hope is growing this church on me, you're in trouble. Because... There are sometimes, even though I prepare as best I know how academically, sometimes my soul isn't as healthy as it ought to be that day. Sometimes I went through some stuff through the week and I'm trying to push it down like you do a beach ball in the pool. What happens when you just let up a little bit? Boom! Where? Oh, shoot. I got... Sometimes I'm doing my best, but I ain't perfect at this. And so I, my, my preparation's a 10, but my soul is about a four. And so you average it out to a six and a half, seven, seven, seven. <laughs> Got to round up, round up, round up, round up. Make me feel good, round up. You grow the church. 
get out your Bible, go through the foundations with them, get a purple book, and you disciple them. Make it happen in your world. You can do this thing. Don't depend upon me. Having said that, I'm going to do my best, but sometimes best isn't good enough for the person you're bringing. That's how the church grows best, when you make it grow. This is what community ought to feel like. And there are areas we need to improve on. There are areas we're doing pretty good in. But we never need to sit on our laurels and we always need to press so that you can experience the kind of biblical community we find here in Acts. Let's pray. Father, I love you. I thank you for your goodness and grace and power. All of us, help us to be what we should be that we are not yet.